0: Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast is with John Craig. John is a former RAF buccaneer and tornado navigator, but the main focus of the interview is his exchange to with the Royal Australian Air Force flying the F-111 aardvark. So if you like what we do here, please head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also, visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Enjoy. John when did you become
1: interested in aviation well really when I uh, left school or when I was at school um, I was at school in Peterhead in Aberdeenshire and uh, I joined the ATC and it was largely through the ATC that I became interested
0: so what aircraft did you train in
1: um, well I flew uh, in the chipmunk in the University Air School, Aberdeen University Air School, and we had uh, I guess half a dozen chipmunks and uh, I couldn't fly it so there we are I ended up as a navigator
0: did you always
1: want to be in the Air Force? Um, yes, I did. Um, my dad was against it. My dad had been in the, the army as a conscript um, and tried to persuade me. I, I worked for uh, Westland helicopters for a little bit. and uh, But whenever I got a chance, I joined the Air Force.
0: How long did your training last?
1: Well, it was in two bits, really. Um, officer training was about six months at RAF Henlow, just uh, outside Hitchin. And then after that, um, I did a bit of flying training, both on the Chipmunk and uh, on the, the Varsity and Dominie at RAF Finningley. And Jet Provost at, uh, at RAF Finningley. What was that like to fly? The Jet Provost was small. Um, I, I flew with a guy called Mike Saunders, and Mike Saunders was a big bulky guy, a bit like me. And, uh, you know, I had to get into the aircraft first, and then he got in afterwards because there was no room for both of us to get in at the, at the same time. So after training, where were you posted? Well, I had a, a, an incident at the end of training where I got stranded in Gibraltar with a broken domini on my last flight, <laughs> um, and everyone else had got the, everyone else on my course had been given their postings, and with me it was between Shackleton's and uh, the Buccaneer, and there was only two postings left—one to Shackleton, one to Buccaneer. I was lucky enough to get the Buccaneer, and I trained. On the Buccaneer, RAF Honington, Burry St Edmonds, and then went to Germany straight afterwards.
0: Did you always want the Buccaneer?
1: Uh, yes,
0: full stop. <laughs> John chats about his time on the Buccaneer. So when did your training start on the Buccaneer and what was it like? Well, 1974, um,
1: I started training on the Buccaneer. I, I had been to RAF Larbrook for a short period before as an ops officer, not flying on ground duties. Uh, then in 74 I, I went to the Buccaneer OCU. Uh, it lasted about a year, just a bit short of a year. Um, and then I went to RAF Larbrook and was operational six months later on 15 squadron at RAF Larbrook. That would have been 75, I guess, January 75.
0: So how did your training prepare you for fast jet flying?
1: Um, I think it prepared you very well. Um, Things have changed a little bit on fast jets now. It it used to be in the early days that uh, there was no really such thing as a pilot or navigator. There was just two people who flew an airplane. And you got in and you operated it together. Um, Whereas it did with the Tornado GR1 in particular, it changed a bit. The the F-111 was not, it was similar to that, it was just a crew. Whereas the uh, the Tornado, it was more of a pilot and navigator and navs were navs and pilots were pilots and pilots were superior individuals, but there we are.
0: So what squadrons were you best with?
1: Um, well, I started on 15 um, at RAF Larbrook um, and I did uh, a tour and a half or an extended tour on 15 and then went to 12th Squadron at Huntington, and then went on to the... Staff on the Buccaneer OCU, the conversion unit 237 OCU, which was at Honington. It moved and during my time to, to Lossiemouth and then back to Honington again. Well, oh, sorry, I get that wrong. 12 squadron moved to Honington, from Honington to Lossie, uh, but the OCUs remained at Honington. So I, I was lucky enough to be a, an instructor on the OCU, which was fantastic, best time of my life.
0: So did each squadron have a different role?
1: Uh, yes. Um, 15 Squadron was over land, uh, assigned to NATO. Uh, 12 Squadron was over water, uh, anti-shipping in particular. And uh, though it was assigned to NATO, it was really a British unit more than a NATO unit, whereas 15 Squadron was totally NATO unit.
0: So what was your role on the Buccaneer?
1: Well, as uh, navigator, you know, the, the man in the back... <laughs>
0: They always say it's a tougher job in the back,
1: don't they? Well, it is, it is to a certain extent. We had, and an, uh, there was only one Buccaneer that had two sticks. Um, the uh, rear CTAR had the radar, all the weapons control, and the navigator as well.
0: So, overall, did you enjoy your time in the Caribbean?
1: Oh, wonderful. Best airplane, best time of my life. Yeah. Best time of my life.
0: John chats about his exchange tour with the Royal Australian Air Force on the F-111. So after the OCU, you went on an exchange programme with the Royal Australian Air Force. How did yeah. this
1: happen? Well, it, it, was, it was all a bit problematical, but um, essentially uh, I was posted to Australia for two two years, two and a half years, just to do a complete exchange. As an Australian crew, came across and uh, flew in the Buccaneer, and as I went out as a crew with a guy called Keith Oliver, Ollie, who um, was the British pilot, so it was just a straight exchange and swap. But of course, we had to do respective training on uh, each of the airplanes.
0: So, did you need certain qualifications to do uh,
1: that? Um, no, you didn't really. You just needed a fair amount of experience and. Uh, Though some, uh, some people were weapons instructors, some were not. Um, you, you, didn't really, you needed experience more than uh, qualifications.
0: How many positions were there?
1: Uh, in Australia, we only had two. One pilot, one navigator. Oh, okay. Plus, uh, on the Chinook, at the same base, there was a, a British pilot flew the Chinook who uh, sadly died in a flying accident out there.
0: So what was your impression when you first saw an F-111 in person? Big very
1: big <laughs> big uh, it's the same size as a, a, a DC-9 was now a DC-9 at that time was much smaller than they are now or shorter than they are now but essentially it's the same size the wheels were big um, though again compared with the Hunter they were not hugely bigger than that they are a little bit bigger than that but certainly wider and fatter and, uh, uh, yeah it was a big airplane big so airplane when you
0: first saw it could you not wait to get in have a
1: Ah, Of course, of course that's what it's all about, getting in and flying.
0: So what squadron were you assigned to?
1: Um, Well you start, they had two F-111 squadrons in Australia, one squadron and six squadron. One squadron was the operational squadron and six squadron was the training squadron and the recce squadron. So I started on six doing my training there. I never got qualified on recce though I flew on recce missions, I was never fully qualified on recce. Um, and one squadron was overland and maritime. So after my training, I went to one squadron, other side of the same base.
0: So what year did you move over there?
1: I went across in '82 uh, and came back in '85. Did
0: you have to pack up all your belongings? Oh
1: yeah, everything. We had seven point whatever cubic meters of uh, space, and your whole worldly goods. And my wife had to go into the uh, that seven point, and my daughters actually. <laughs> It was, she was about three months, two months when we went over.
0: So when did your training begin when you moved over
1: there? Um, we went across in November, I think my training started in December or January. About, they have a quite a long, in their view, summer holiday over Christmas, uh, about four weeks. And I started straight after the holiday.
0: So could you go into a bit of detail about the training and what
1: happened Well, essentially, the training was completely different to the American training. The American training on the F-111 told you how to fly the aeroplane. The Australian training, a bit like the British way of doing things, you you had to design and build the aeroplane from first principles, and uh, you had to go into much, much more depth. Um, We did, I think, six weeks of ground school, um, all ground school. And then after that, you did simulator work. And they had one simulator there, and uh, uh, after that there was a great trip with a a flying instructor. But of course, being two seat, and and some of them had two sticks as well. You could, uh, though we didn't need for navigators didn't need a two stick. You just needed two seat, and you flew with uh, an instructor and flew with him for three or four sorties. Then you went off with whoever uh, a student pilot as well. What
0: were your first thoughts on the F one eleven?
1: Um, that they operated very differently in Australia to the way we operated, um, largely because of the size of the country, largely because there's not radar. I mean, in Britain uh, and Europe, for that matter, everywhere you go, someone on a radar is looking at you. That's not the case in Australia. Um, And if they're not looking at you, they can't help you. So you're much more indigenous in the way you operated and, and what's known as procedural... Um, separation was was commonplace, whereas in, in Europe, as I said, radar separation at medium level, whereas at low level, very similar, very similar.
0: So, can you tell us about your first flight and how much training you got before you actually hopped in the seat?
1: <laughs> um, I think we had probably about uh, four or five trips before I flew with a student pilot. Before that, it was always with an instructor. In my case, it was a guy called Rodney Scotland, and Rodney Scotland was the the, uh, flight commander training, so he was in charge of the training. And once he ticks you off, he ticks you off, and you go and fly with a student. It's straightforward. Um, The guy I flew with, the student pilot I flew with, was a bloke called uh, Johnny Perrett, and he was very, very good. We went on to be on one squadron together as a crew later on.
0: So what was your
1: role as a navigator on the F-111? Well, the role was just basically was to, to conduct all the navigation, the weapon aiming, um, to be a second man in terrain flying operations, and uh, essentially that was it. Though, uh, it, again, it was quite different. Um, we only flew every second day, for instance, on the 111, um, because it took a day to prepare your mission. that was normal. And that was, so, normal, and that was f- absolutely normal. Uh, we did more night flying in Australia than we did in UK, uh, which was, was normal. But there was a, a, an edict came down from on high that we had to do a third of a time at night, so we did. And
0: that wasn't scary?
1: It was very scary, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how long did a typical training mission last?
1: Um, just over two hours, two and a half hours. Um, we always did, uh, in Australia, or almost always, high, low, high, low, with a weapon range at the end and uh, virtually all our um, weapon practice weapon uh, flying was done at a a range called Levin's Head, which was just south of Brisbane about 60 or 70 miles south of Brisbane
0: Did you have a a mid-air refuel?
1: Um, Yes, we've. the the problem of course in Australia is at the time they didn't have any tankers they do now so we had to wait for an American tanker, and if American KC one hundred and thirty five came to Australia to do something else, we always latched onto it and and did our training with the Americans.
0: So, what was a typical day? Can you run us through a day in life of an F one hundred and eleven
1: now? Well, I mean, you get up at a normal time, um, and if you were flying, you probably got up a little bit earlier, and we're into uh, met brief at I don't know six thirty seven. Um, and then you went through all the, the normal sortie briefing, the uh, bits and pieces of the sortie. It was almost always flown as a singleton, whereas on the Tornado we quite frequently flew as a four-ship or, a, or whatever. On the Buccaneer we flew as four-ships as well in Germany. But on the 111 it was largely singleton, so you only had to plan your own sortie. Um, and we planned it and mapped books where we had... Uh, instead of just a map it you, you was all fabric uh, fablon and put in a book and you fold it over page from page and uh, yeah it, it, it was one way of doing things I'm not saying there's one way better than the other it was just one way of doing things
0: So how did it differ to the
1: Buccaneer? In <laughs> um, it's interesting uh, Laza, because we flew more at night um, the buccaneer overland uh, at night was a bit of a joke, really. Yeah, it wasn't very capable. Whereas the F 111, having the terrain following radar, was very, very capable. And when we started uh, working up for the, the bobbing competition in the States, we were doing long, long over, overland night sorties uh, with the terrain following radar, and when we could, with a tanker. Um, now well it was very similar to the, the Buccaneer power wise, it was just that the, on the Buccaneer the engine was, was more reliable, the, the SPA was more reliable than the TF30. The, the, the TF30 um, of course had reheat as well, uh, whereas the Buccaneer didn't have reheat, so yes you were, ca- you were conscious of that on takeoff, that you had much more power and you were getting airborne much more quickly. So what kind of ordinance could the, the f-111 carry 82 mark 82 is mark 84s um, both guided and unguided uh, the mark 82 was a 500 pounder the mark 84 was a 2000 pounder and the, the 2000 pounder was was a big big bomb and made a big big bang uh whereas the mark 82 was just a big squib really yeah so did
0: you ever drop in yes
1: bang? we we did it quite frequently uh we, we dropped live bombs almost every Friday morning and I don't quite know why it was Friday morning but we went, instead of going to Evans Head Range, uh, there was another range up near Townsville on, uh, there was a, a wreck chip and a reef there, we used to go and bomb quite frequently and then less frequently down near Sydney uh, there was a range there where we could drop overland to drop Mark 84s and that was something else I tell you <laughs> Well, it was great great fun, but uh, you know, it was just the noise. I thought the first time I dropped a Mark 84, uh, a chap called Mark Skidmore was a pilot, and he'd never dropped one before either. And there was a a specific manoeuvre you had to fly, and I thought we did a bird strike. The noise was so loud inside the cockpit that I thought we did a bird strike, but it wasn't. It was just a bomb going off. from the right hand seat you could reach all the controls aircraft controls except the wing sweep lever which was way over there for the pilot Um, and the pilot had the stick whereas on the right hand seat the the stick was removed so that you had better access to the radar and behind that the the navigation equipment Um, the seats were Less comfortable, less posture supportive than Martin Baker seats. Now, I know that some people would disagree with that, but I heard them. A, a bad back, I think, from the one, well, maybe a bit of bobsledding as well, but uh, from the, the um, American Stencil seats. In the, it's very different, of course, because they're not ejector seats. Uh, in the, the 111, the whole of the front cockpit came away um, if, if you ejected. So you came away with your pilot, and the whole thing floated as well, so there was no need for a dinghy.
0: So was there a time delay of being a whole capsule?
1: Um, a little bit, but it's, but it's not more than a second, so it's you know not not a significant time delay.
0: So um, did you have any function with uh, flying the aircraft, with the wing sweep or anything like that?
1: None, none on the operational squadron, but when I uh, went back uh, as an instructor on six squadron, part of the deal is being an instructor on 6-1 and even a nav instructor is you had to be able to land the aeroplane on your own now bear in mind that as I said you couldn't reach the wing sweep lever so you had to do everything but you could get the throttles in the middle with your left hand um, and on, on some of the aeroplanes the two stick aeroplanes you had a stick so it, it wasn't a great problem the throttle stick flaps is all you need so I remember I flew the uh, F-18 one, F-16 ones oh wow and uh, with a Belgian, and uh, came back and said, where's the the wing flap lever then? And he said, there isn't one. They don't have a wing flap lever. It's just, when the gear comes down, the flaps come down. Straightforward.
0: Did you enjoy that trip?
1: Uh, Well, yes, but I got a bad back from it. (laughs) He pulled so hard, I think he pulled about 8 or 9G, and I wasn't accustomed to that.
0: John tells us about the terrain-following radar. So could you tell us a bit about their
1: terrain-following radar? Well, it had uh, two completely independent terrain-following radars, two-channel, twin-channel. The Tornado was twin-channel too, but essentially on the 111, it was two independent channels, whereas on the Tornado, it was though it was two-channel, it was just two channels going into the system. Uh, on the 111, you could actually select between channel A and channel B and depending which one you thought had the best performance, you 'd use either Channel A or Channel B, and you could change over almost seamlessly in the air between channel one and channel and the other. each sortie, we did a, a terrain following descent, so you 'd fly along at medium level, say 10,000 feet roughly, put in the, t- the terrain following radar, select it, take your hands off and it would go zinc, down you go. <laughs> go straight down and it would level out at whatever height you had set on the, the thing um, normally we would set it to four or 500 feet and then descend from there
0: So did you ever train with any other nations?
1: Yes, we trained with the yanks quite a lot um, and the uh, up in Singapore uh, Singaporeans we worked with a lot and the Malays we worked with a fair amount um, just whoever was available really
0: Here, John chats about the Royal Australian Air Force. So, can you tell us um, the difference between the RAF and the RWF?
1: (laughs) Everything that the Australian Air Force did, largely, was copied from the RAF. Um, They flew, I mean, uh, with the Mirage, which they had as the prime fighter before the F-18, they got some uh, French influence, but they... When they bought the Mirage, they bought the airplane. They didn't get a very good support service from the French, whereas uh, with the 111, we had an excellent support service from the Americans, but then that's largely because that was part of the contract, and the way that it was argued, the way it was, they did a deal with the Yanks, they did an excellent deal, whereas with the Mirages, it wasn't quite like that. The, the Mirages sold them the airplanes, and that was it. They had to do all the rest themselves. Um, now, they... The 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 procedures, the squadron setups, and everything is very very similar to the Royal Air Force. Um, roughly the same number of airplanes per squadron. Um, the same structure as a squadron commander, a couple of flight commanders, yeah, and and a few specialists. Um, two flights normally, A flight, B flight, same as the RAF. Um, they're... The way they fly the aeroplane is slightly different, but that is because the country is different, because the terrain is different, because the setup, because the air traffic services are different. Um, and it's not nearly as confined. You know, we had a, a low-flying area in, uh, in Brisbane, which was 200 miles out. Now, you know, 200 miles and a sector of 180 degrees. That's a big, big bit of sky. That's the, the size of Britain.
0: So, did
1: you have someone to report to, or did you just go through the RAA? Um I, <laughs> we reported to the air attaché in the um, British High Commission in Sydney, essentially. But he, we only saw him once a year, That's and right. that was yeah. So we we had to f- virtually fend for ourselves. The Australian um, setup was, was very good. The squadron commanders, the flight commanders, largely, with one exception, were uh, very, very supportive. And it, it wasn't a huge problem. Um, accommodation and things was a bit more of a problem, but we just had to resolve that yourself uh, in conjunction with the High Commission uh, because then nobody had any money. You know, yeah. Straightforward.
0: Could you tell us a bit of detail about the F111,
1: like how fast, how high it could go? It could go higher and faster than anything else. (laughs) Um, My last trip in the 111, I did Mach 2 at 50,000 feet. Um, It was all all set up so that I would have exactly 500 hours when I, I finished. But it didn't work out like that, as always, because we had a um, hydraulic failure and had to come back early with 40 minutes to go. And when I got back on the Friday, the squadron commander said, there's another one on the line, take it, and I don't want any fuel in it left when you come back. <laughs> so, so we, we used 39,000 pounds of fuel in, in 40 minutes, I think. Um, great, great fun. But it's black up there, you know, when you get the higher you go, 50,000 feet, it's really quite dark.
0: So how many times
1: a week did you fly? Uh, normally three times a week for, for two hours, two and a half, two hours, something like that.
0: So was the planning and the debrief, uh, was that a long process?
1: Uh, the planning took all day. The debrief was normally the same as in UK an hour. Um, but again, being a, a, a singleton, you, you didn't have to sort of wait. You went in, had a cup of coffee and went off and debriefed it. Um, And we also had an intelligence debrief with um, the intelligence officer, which we didn't have in the UK, except on exercise.
0: So
1: you also did a bit of instructing on that? Yes, I did six months as a fully qualified instructor on the 111 and a a radar specialist, yes. So
0: what did that
1: entail? Well, essentially it entailed flying with uh, uh, quite a lot of ground school work, um, but also flying with student pilots... Um, on a, a a course, we had a, I think two courses went through while I was an instructor, and uh, you instruct on the, the airplane how to fly the airplane. Though the the pure piloting skills were done largely by a flying instructor, but uh, we had to be able to come back and land the airplane off a, a TACAN approach into um, Brisbane, well into uh, Amberley, which is. 20 miles from Brisbane
0: so on an average what kind of speeds would you reach
1: um, well we flew largely at 480 knots 480 nautical miles an hour whereas a tornado in the Buccaneers 420 for, for fuel but the the fuel burning on the, the F111 wasn't hugely different at 480 to 420 mm-hmm. so we, we flew at 480 and all the books everything was calibrated for 4, 480 knots what position would the wings be in at that point? Uh, virtually, well, it's really hard to say because um, there's one of the differences between the Tornado and the 111. Tornado, the three positions for the wings and the the performance manuals only covered these three positions. Whereas in the the F-111, the, the pilots used to sort of put the wings in, in a, a position to give them the best alpha, the best angle of attack and uh, if the best angle of attack gives the lowest fuel consumption
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the bomb comp was strictly a pre-competition in Australia and the people who won the pre-competition went as the Australian Air Force representatives on the bomb comp there were four um, places, well four crews now I actually came forth with, um, despite the fact we're just, you know, freshly out of the OCU, with my uh, navigator, my pilot rather, called Johnny Perrett, and uh, we went across. There was a big discussion because they didn't particularly want a, a Brit to represent Australia in the Boncom, but we went as first reserve and uh, flew across the Pacific um, to Mountain Home Air Force Base. We flew. The bomb comp out of Mountain Home Air Force Base, and then went on to do some uh, pretty classified work on electronic uh, jamming, and then went back to the do the exercise Red Flag, and that was all all fun and all. That's five week detachment to the states, not including the transit. So, hit what?
0: So how did the Australians fare? who came last
1: came <laughs> Really? I, yeah. The, uh, the RAF on it that year, actually, strangely enough.
0: With the tornado?
1: With the tornado, yes. But were the
0: American F-111s there at
1: the time? There were American F-111s. So um, there rivalized. were two, two lots because of the USAFE, the, the European 111s from Lake and Heath, and the American uh, 111s from Mountain Home Air Force Base. No FB-111s. They, they were different aeroplane altogether.
0: What was the difference?
1: FB One Eleven was a um, SAC Strategic Air Command. They were nuclear bombers, full stop. All oh, right. Um, whereas uh, the Australian ones were multi-role, but they didn't have nuclear weapons. And the UK ones, well, UK-based ones did have nuclear weapons. So. So, so
0: when you were at Red Flag, did you were the Brits? You said they'd
1: gone by then. Now, the, the Brits were in. Uh, the the people uh, Red Flag were the. Um, OEU, Operational evaluation Unit um, and they were f- I think they had flown Red Flag and were down in uh, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida doing some trials work there as well
0: So did you interact with each other when you were
1: there? Um, yes, a little bit certainly in Florida we did a lot, but uh, at, at uh, Red Flag not or at the Bomb Comp, not as much um,
0: So going back to Australia like, what was the social life like over there?
1: Ah, different. Um, they got paid. They had, there was a, an Australian rule that they had to be paid in cash, um, at least some of their salary in cash. Now, most of the, uh, the pilots and aircrew got the minimum they could in cash, which was 10% of the salary. But nonetheless, every second Thursday after payday was happy hour. So we had our happy hour in the mess on Thursday nights, not on Friday nights. God, no. That was it. Other than that, the social life, um, we had other exchange officers there um, and the exchange officers had their own social life, but um, I, I f- towards the end at least a lot of interaction with the Australians. In fact, the uh, one of the Guys, I, I I knew fairly well. It was a bloke called Shep Shepherd, and Shep ended up as chief of the Australian Defence Force, wow. not just the Australian Air Force. And he had a uh, yeah, he was a very very competent pilot, good guy.
0: So, did you prefer flying in the UK or in Australia?
1: Unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really know. Um, it was just so so completely different um, I guess I guess UK and Europe was probably better
0: so do you have any memorable stories from
1: the F1 line? yeah um, we flew we, we, we flew to the States which involved going up to Townsville Townsville to Hawaii, Hawaii to, or Townsville to Quadranatil to to Hawaii Hawaii to the States and I was uh, quite experienced by this stage. And the, um, the, the policy was to always use an inexperienced navigator to gain experience, to, to uh, lead a foreship. Now, myself and a, a nameless Australian officer who became quite senior were planning the mission. And he said to him, look, I'll tell you what, why don't we peel the fablon off the map and in the middle of the Pacific put an island in, so we cut out an island with a beacon on it and stuck it in the middle of the map flying across the Pacific. Have you, know, you seen the, this island? Nope, nothing on the radar. <laughs> no beacon.
0: So did the um, tornado incorporate any of the swing wing technology from the F-111?
1: Well, yes and no. No. Um, The the swing-wing technology in the Tornado was, um, I guess, copied from the 111. It was because it was uh, fashionable uh, at the time to have swing-wings. Completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. Look at the Phantom. The Phantom was faster, uh, performed better than the Tornado did. But some people would disagree with that. The Hunter here is the same it's welded wings and uh, I don't know did it get better fuel consumption I doubt it, maybe it did but I think the the fuel consumption was because of the engines perhaps more than the swing wing and I mean I, I don't think I ever flew in a tornado with the wings at 67 Really? Yeah, other than on the, on the conversion unit All at 45, I'm uh, sometimes at 45 but normally not wow. so yeah I mean if you wanted to go supersonic but nobody ever went supersonic in Tornado because it burned too much fuel you know, it's it, was just, it, it was completely unnecessary whereas flying at 424, 18 knots at 200 feet um, at night IMC was the order of the day wow. and that's what happened at the time but the the Tenenu was too complicated for its own good, whereas the 111, because it was older, um, was not particularly complicated. Um, it was all yeah, essentially what we would say is steam driven. But so the
0: uh, wingspeed was, uh, wing was manual, not
1: automatic. The wingspeed was manual, and you could you could leave the lever anywhere you wanted.
0: So there
1: wasn't certain positions nope. wherever you wanted it. Whereas in the, the F-14, I think, was only automatic and you could only go to certain positions. So I think to that extent, though the Tornado you could probably, nobody did, you could probably leave the wingsweep anywhere you wanted, uh, but people didn't do it because it was against the rules. Yeah. I, think, I think it was a mistake... That the Brits did not buy the 111K. Um, Though, you know, we had the Buccaneer because of that, we had the Tornado because of that. But there's an awful lot talked about the TSR 2. And my understanding is that TSR 2 was not a brilliant airplane, despite what everyone else says. Oh, really? Um, And we would have been better off perhaps with the, the 111. I just don't know. But I talked to a couple of guys who'd test flown in the TSR-2, and they weren't desperately happy with the aeroplane um, for, for lots of reasons. I think from a pilot's perspective, it was better. And, and, and again, bearing in mind that it was essentially a replacement for the, the, the Vulcan, the Victor, and the Valiant, it was a quantum leap ahead of that,
0: yeah.
1: but not as good as the one
0: so overall, did you enjoy your time with it?
1: Oh, very much so. Very much. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It was not uh, great for the career in that it was not, a, not a, a promotion job. There are much better promotion jobs, all of which are in Ministry of Defence, and I don't want to go there. I'd to. far rather be in Australia.
0: John chats about operating the Tornado GR1 and comparing it to the F-111. So could you tell us what happened when you went back to the UK?
1: Well, I, I finished my tour in Australia on the F-111 and was posted to Tornadoes. Um, I came back, did the uh, combat survival course, um, and, uh, um, well, essentially I ended up in Germany in, uh, on Tornadoes, on, back on 15th squadron, again on fifteen squadron, the same squadron as before, um, doing effectively the same role, which was um, but assigned to, to NATO, It was an overland role, both conventional and nuclear.
0: So, how did you feel uh, going from the uh, F-111 to the Tornado? How did the
1: Well, it was a logical progression for me. It was a logical thing to do. It was the sensible thing to do. I had an awful lot of experience by that stage, uh, both overland and maritime. Um, Going to the overland side in Germany on the Tornado just seemed the, the the logical progression, and I was very happy with that.
0: Did you
1: get a choice in the man? Um, not much. No. Not much. The Air Force doesn't give you much of a choice. <laughs> so,
0: what squadrons were you based
1: with on the Tornado? On the Tornado, it was uh, 15 Squadron at Larbrook, then 14 Squadron at Bruggen and I did a, a full tour at, as uh, Deputy Squadron Commander on 14 Squadron at Bruggen. right up to the end, actually, more or less. Um, though I was not involved in the Gulf War. Directly, I was indirectly very involved in the Gulf War by running things back at home.
0: So, can you tell us some of the similarities and the dissimilarities between the Tornado and the F-111?
1: Well, terrain-following radar obviously is the main similarity. The dissimilarity was that the uh, F-111s, at least the ones that we had in Australia, were all analogue computers, uh, whereas the Tornado was all digital computers. But they were really, really first-stage digital computers. Um, But nonetheless, they were digital. And the uh, navigation system in the Tornado was vastly superior to the one in the Mm F-111 because it was digital um, and because it had a national platform. And we didn't have a national platform. We had a very rudimentary national platform on the F-111.
0: So what was your role as a nav on the Tornado?
1: Well, the role was much more as a weapons operator on the Tornado. Um, though you, uh, on the, the uh, terrain-following radar, you communicated with the pilot, and there was a lot of chit-chat, cross-chat, between the man in the front to ensure that you were not going to... I mean, bearing in mind, this is completely IMC, completely in cloud, um, as it was in the F-111, but um, a lot of chat uh, to ensure that The system was working properly, that you knew where we are, where we were, that you uh, weren't going to fly into a hill. It didn't happen often, but it did happen.
0: Could you tell the difference in performance?
1: Yes. uh, Largely, the 111 went faster, carried more, and went much further. Though there are those who would disagree and say the tornado was faster, but it's not true.
0: (laughs) Could you tell us about your time on 14 Squadron?
1: 14 was a very, very good, very professional squadron, um, like all the squadrons at Bruggen. Um, it was part of the Bruggen wing, which had four squadrons, 14, 17, 9 squadron, and uh, 31 squadron. And we all did the same role. Um, we were very, very proficient at it at the time. we uh, were perhaps a little bit limited by the weapons that we had. We didn't really, at that time, have any smart weapons. We had some, but they were not very smart. So how many hours did you get on Tornado? Um, 1,500, I guess, thereabouts. I'm not 100% sure. On, on the F-111, I had 500 hours exactly, which is another story, and I'll come to that later. And the Buccaneer, about 1,500 as well. So quite a few hours then. Um, quite a few.
0: So after your Tornado um, tour, or whatever you want to call it, um, what happened after that?
1: Um, I was posted... To Headquarters 2 Group Which was the the headquarters in Germany As an excise planning officer Largely Um, And then 2 Group closed down in Germany And we went to one group uh, Which was in strike command Embedded in strike command at RAF High Wycombe Uh, Again looking after tornadoes As staff officer and excise planner
0: So did you enjoy your time on tornado?
1: Oh brilliant Brilliant. I enjoyed all of it. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have missed any of it for the world. You know, It was all, all really, really good. Some were better than others. It's a bit like whiskey, you know. There's no such thing as a bad whiskey. Some are better
0: <laughs> yeah. than others. Very true, very true. <laughs> and finally, we get to hear a personal side to John. So, John, do you
1: have any hobbies? Um, well, I play golf a bit, very badly. Um, I used to be heavily involved in bobsleigh with the RAF uh, and right up to British team level. Um, other hobbies these days, just I go to the gym quite a lot um, and walk. We've got a house in France, we do a bit of walking. Very
0: nice. Do you have a favourite tipple?
1: Uh, well, I've got many favourite tipples. <laughs> um, I, 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 my son is a wine merchant, so, uh, well, he's a wine buyer actually, so I'd be remiss not to say French Bordeaux red is, is the favourite tipple.
0: Very nice. Do you have a favourite aircraft?
1: Uh, probably the F-111.
0: Book an Tornado or F-111, which would you choose to go to war in?
1: Um, hard question that, actually. Probably the Tornado. Probably the Tornado. Because, uh, though it didn't go very far, it was very agile and, and quite fast.
0: Did you do any display work?
1: A little bit. Um, I did a couple of displays um, in, on the Buccaneer um, did a couple in the tornado though it was mainly uh, ground you know, uh, ground displays in the tornado But uh, oh, it was I, <laughs> I went to a place called Barnes Municipal Air, Airport in, in the States, near Boston and uh, we were just so well looked after there and I met uh, Senator Kennedy there And uh, he, he at the time, I think, was president, chairman, boss of the Air National Guard for Massachusetts. Wonderful person, wonderful person.
0: And finally, do you ever get sick about talking about aviation? Never. (laughs) Simple answer. (laughs) thanks very much for listening we hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv also please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content prizes upcoming interviews and much more and of course go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as one dollar per month thank you and see you soon